is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. In this episode, we'll be looking at Disney's fourth package film, Fun and Fancy Free. This ended up being a patchwork of stories that had been in production for years, derailed by World War II, but it does mark the sort of return to the creative pre-strike years in Disney's history. Some minor notes, just in, in terms of our research, there's not a lot out there about this movie in our typical sources, mentioned only in two pages in Walt Disney, The Triumph of Art. American Imaginary, and it's in the Toshin Walt Disney Archives book. There's just pictures. It's not mentioned in Queens of Animation. It's uh, it is mentioned in Leonard Malton's book, but there's a lot of just a, not a ton of information about the background of this one. We do want to note there is a book by J.B. Kaufman called The Making of Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free. It is out of print, and so we could not get a copy of it in time to read it before recording this episode. But if you are very interested in this movie, for whatever reason, it looks like that might be a good source. And maybe someday we'll read it and circle back to this. We'll see. So with that, Megan, do you want to introduce us to the the storied background behind Fun and Fancy Free? So this is definitely one of those interesting ones. We've talked a lot about the package films kind of throwing a bunch of little shorts together. This one is interesting because it only has two, not quite shorts, not quite full features, but it kind of is Disney's way of bringing himself back to what he wanted to be before the chaos of the late 30s and early 40s. So after World War II, Disney really wanted to get back to doing full features. And the package films were kind of seen as a way for him to get the money for those, and compromise with Roy and with the bank. I read some really funny accounts in some of the Walt Disney biographies where essentially the bank came to him and said, you are so in debt, you're not getting any more money. And he said, ha, I'm Walt Disney, I can get another bank. And Roy had to sit him down and be like, well, that's not how banks or money or business works, but good try though. So the way that he kind of tried to fix this was he took little bits and pieces that were either supposed to be in full features of their own or pieces that were kind of deleted from earlier films and just started kind of pulling them all together. So Fun and Fancy Free is a compilation of Bongo, which was loosely based on the short story Little Bear Bongo by Sinclair Lewis and Mickey and the Beanstalk, which was based on Jack and the Beanstalk. This one's really weird, though. The history of how these came to be put together and how everything kind of showed up in the final version is a lot of kind of hearsay, and we get one version of the narrative, and at best, if you get two, there's some contradictions. So you'll have to stick with us through a little bit of it. Production on Bongo was one of the really early ones. The short story was originally published in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1930. But they suggested that Bongo could be a sequel or potentially a prequel to Dumbo. And the idea was that Bongo, as a story about a circus animal, would be the natural follow-up to what was such a beloved story. But it just never really came together. They were just about done with the script on December 8th, 1941, which is the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the day that the military basically told Walt, we own your studio, deal with it. So they, they kind of had to put it on pause and ended up piecing it together into the final version. 
I had no idea that Bongo, like, I, I, I don't remember if it's in the credits or not, but Sinclair Lewis is not a name I associate with Disney. I associate him with English class. And so it's really funny to me that the first American to win the Nobel Prize in Literature wrote a story for Cosmopolitan magazine, which is not a magazine I associate with short stories. It's not it's not a place that I would look for fiction these days. More like, you know, lists of beauty tips and and other things. Like there's so many pieces here that I was just like, this is the the world of the 1940s thirties and forties is much different than that of today, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. But I actually really like the idea of Bongo being a Dumbo prequel or sequel or like taking place like in the same circus because I do like those character designs and I think the designs in Bongo like feel close enough where they could have gotten away with it. And I think it's also a way that's Bongo and Dumbo and their names are sort of similar sounding. But I really I actually really like that idea. I mean Disney wouldn't release a sequel to their any of their animated films until Ralph breaks the internet and Frozen 2. So it took a long, long time for them to actually come around on the... Oh, no, I lied. I'm sorry. I forgot about the Rescuers Down Under. So that's still 1990-something before they released a sequel to one of their animated features. Or at least a theatrical sequel. We do have some of the other weird, like, direct-to-video kind of sequels in there. But still, it's it's interesting that for a studio that was sort of anti-sequel for... A long time, you know. Again, going back to you can't top pigs with pigs. It is interesting that it was at least talked about with with Bongo. So, what do you think about the idea of Bongo and Dumbo being in a, a shared circus universe? I kind of have two thoughts on this. The first one is I definitely see, and I think we we were talking about this with Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Disney was trying to create like the shared Disney verse where the characters all kind of live in the same universe. And I definitely see that. And I think anyone can see it in this movie. They certainly kind of brought the pieces together. I think that it is interesting to see that development, but I'm also keeping it in my mind as the, are circuses evil or not debate that Disney seemed to be kind of grappling with. Because of course in Pinocchio, we have Pleasure Island, that is not quite a circus, but is is fairly similar. And that's bad. And in Dumbo, it's not innately bad, but a lot of the people are bad. And then in this one, it gets even more confusing because they actually change from the source material a lot. So just a quick rundown of the Little Bear Bongo, the original story. In the original story, Bongo is just a member of the circus and essentially just an accident happens and he gets out of his cage and ends up in the woods and he tries to adapt to the wild nobody likes him there he tries to kind of woo this female bear named silver ear she does not end up going for it she ends up choosing to be with the other bear lumpjaw and so bongo realizes that he is not meant to be in the wild goes to a random circus that happens to be nearby, finds an unnamed circus bear, and just decides, like, this is life. It's much better to be a captive in civilization than a loner in the wild. And Disney definitely changed that. They smushed all the female bears into one, and they end it with Bongo living free from the circus out in the woods the whole time. So there's, there definitely seems to be this evolving sense that the circus is not just for the perversion of young puppet boys, but actually is this complicated space where you are used and abused, but sometimes it gives you self-confidence because Bongo does use his circus tricks to defeat the bear. I don't know. It's all very complicated, and I just see such a through line towards the building of Disneyland of them trying to grapple with the idea of like, are circuses evil or are they just like places that are fun that maybe have some some questionable elements? I think that's a great point. I assume Disney also added the slapping element of Bongo. As far as I can tell, yes. I couldn't find a copy of the original story anywhere. There are some copies of it 
licensed by Disney, but I couldn't get a copy on hand quickly enough. I have not been able to find the original text anywhere. So we know the broad outlines of the story, but that's mostly through Wikipedia. I have no idea if the slapping is involved. I would highly doubt it. So if anyone has a lead on a good library that has a vast collection of cosmopolitan magazines from 1930, please email us and we will read the original story and give you all the details around whether it contains bears slapping each other or not. I do think this through line about circuses is really interesting because I agree with you. It, in Dumbo especially, all parts of the circus seem bad, but the circus also gives Dumbo a way to take care of his mom, which is good. And then in this, the circus, like, I mean, there's that one moment where, like, they really emphasize the, the prison nature of Bongo's existence, which I, I think is a really great, just a really great shot. And I just, I wonder if it's because there's so many people collaborating on these that, like, you don't get a single strong point of view. Like, it, unless Walt was like really passionate, anti or pro circus, there wasn't one person working on enough of these projects in an influential, like they were, there's so it's such a collaborative process that they have with the story group and everything that I don't know that they're, I, they're certainly not trying to be consistent, but you can sort of, but I feel like that complexity comes from having different people's points of view kind of all mixed in together. I like the way the circus is depicted in this more than I like the way it's depicted in Dumbo, if only because, again, Dumbo just really bums me out. <laughs> I think that just seeing Bongo, the happy bear, and he's doing his tricks, and he loves life, and then just the, like, chain being clasped around his neck is a really powerful kind of transition scene. Although, while Bongo does eventually stay in the wild... He doesn't actually make any any sense there. They they do have the period of him going, you know, I, I don't know how to climb a tree. I don't know where food comes from. Bugs are annoying. So there's something to be said there for his privileged life in the circus. I don't know. It's a trend I'll be following as we go in the lead up to Disneyland. I think it's interesting for sure. And I... I do like that sort of dilemma, like Bongo actually has a real dilemma in terms of like, there's a real good pro-con list that you could actually feel like is pretty even with that development. But I, I agree with you, that transition where the chain goes around his neck and his whole like posture and everything changes is actually really, it's just really great animation. I mean, ultimately... Bongo's real problem is that the bare necessities hadn't been written yet, and so he had no helpful song to guide him into how to be a bear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even in Bambi, Bambi didn't know how to how to live as a deer until somebody taught him. So Bongo just being horribly confused by everything was a, a good setup that I think would create a, a wonderful edit on YouTube with the bare necessities just being cut in as Baloo teaches him the ways of bears. Would watch. <laughs> and so the second half of this is Mickey and the Beanstalk. And so Megan, if you want to give us the background of how that came to be. That one we've been told either in early 1940 or in 1938 the animators, Bill Cottrell, and not joking, T. He, pitched the idea of a film based around Jack and the Beanstalk. And they are specifically still trying to do this task that sounds wild to us now of making Mickey, Mickey Mouse not kind of fade into obscurity. Mickey was still not doing terribly well at this point in time. So they had pitched the idea that Mickey could kind of be the star of this, and then Donald Duck and Goofy would be the supporting characters. And according to the many different kind of quotes we have about this, once they pitched it, Disney, quote, burst out laughing with tears rolling down his cheeks with joy, but then immediately rejected it and said that the story, quote, murdered my characters, which is a great combination. Oh, it's hilarious. I love it. But also, you've slaughtered all of my characterizations. But somehow they, they did eventually sell him on the story. Walt has kind of talked about the details that, quote, the goof is the sap, the duck is the one who gets into scrapes, gets mad, and has to be quieted down. And Mickey is comparable to Harold Lloyd. 
the situations he gets into make him funny. So he described this story as something that, quote, has great possibilities for the fantastic things. I would like to see it done in such a way that would really put feature quality into it. So depending on which source you trust, he either really hated it or really loved it. And there was probably some transition point along the way there. I really like that comparison of Mickey to Harold Lloyd because as was in that SNL Disney vault short, when the girl's like, you're supposed to be funny to Mickey. I feel like Harold Lloyd is, is a great comparison because it's Mickey is funny because of the situations that he's in, not because he's like telling jokes or necessarily acting in like the most, like the funniest way. And the other thing I wanted to note is that there was a 1933 black and white Mickey Mouse short called Giant Land, which was also an adaptation of Jack and the Beanstalk. So it's not the same where we have access to like all of the things that have ever been out from Disney necessarily, but that probably would have faded by memory. And certainly people like, you know, we're, we're well over 10 years after that short and most people probably wouldn't have seen it because you know if you missed it when it was playing in front of whatever other feature films back in 1933 and 34 you probably weren't familiar with it and so it is also interesting that when disney is willing to take another stab at a story or reuse an idea that they had before one thing i'm trying to keep in mind is that the people watching these when they were new probably didn't know like maybe you know like your dad was like oh i remember when mickey you know when mickey did climb the beanstalk you know and you're like whatever dad this one's in color like it's such a different experience that we have and a different relationship we have with with media but i thought that was worth uh worth highlighting as well and i believe from the reading i was doing there's a couple other shorts where mickey fights giants so maybe that was the selling point that got walt really on board because he seems to really like the idea of pitting this everyman mouse against a giant and somehow making him win out in the end. Just as one more quick kind of history lesson, Jack and the Beanstalk was very well known at this point in time. One of its earliest known appearances was as the story of Jack Spriggins and the Enchanted Bean in 1734. So this has been around a while at this point. Got popular through Benjamin Tabert's 1807, The History of Jack and the Beanstalk, and was then later on featured in Henry Cole's 1845, The Home Treasury, and Joseph Jacob's 1890, English Fairy Tales. So following in line of some of the kind of deep fairy tale, classic folktale stories that Disney had started really developing, this was a story that absolutely everybody knew. And so it was a really easy thing to kind of take these classic Disney characters and give them their own spin on it without having to spend too much time on the narrative itself. Uh, Animation actually begins way back in 1941, uh, shortly after the early drafts of Dumbo were done. Six months later, the first 50 minutes uh, were complete, at least of the what would become known as Mickey and the Beanstalk, but at this point is The Legend of Happy Valley. Uh, So six months later, the the first 50 minutes of what was then known as The Legend of Happy Valley, but what would become Mickey and the Beanstalk were complete. However, uh, in October of 1941, we have the animator strike and then World War II breaks out. And so it was put on hold. They basically take what they had and uh, completely shelved it. And then when it was time to sort of revisit them after the war, Disney felt that the animation of Bongo and The Legend of Happy Valley, which had by this point been renamed, were not sophisticated enough to be their own feature films. And they decided to to build, put them together as a package film. Originally, Walt had wanted to pair Making the Beanstalk with The Wind and the Willows, which was also in production around the same time, which would have been called The Fabulous Characters. Wind of the Wolves eventually is paired with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and that package is retitled The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, uh, which comes out much later, and we'll be talking about that uh, in a few weeks. There's also a live-action segment that sort of wraparounds both. I'm going to say live-action, and then I'm going to say that it also features Jiminy Cricket. And he- <laughs> So he sings I'm a Happy-Go-Lucky Fellow, which was a song written for but cut from uh, Pinocchio before it's released. And then the other major figure in the live action segment is Edgar Bergen, who at this point today is probably best known as being Candace Bergen's father. 
but he was a ventriloquist who got famous on the radio, which to me says he was probably a really great ventriloquist because you're just doing voices at yourself, I guess. If if you can't see the dummy and you're just listening to a ventriloquist back on the radio, you're just, this was the guy talking to himself. But he was very popular at the time. He ends up narrating Mickey and the Beanstalk, uh, including the multiple dummies that he voices. Uh, Charlie and Mortimer are the, the two main ones. Charlie had been actually featured in a few a few Disney shorts prior to this time with Bergen doing the voice that were parodies of Hollywood stars. That was like a thing that both Disney and Looney Tunes did where they would just kind of do these shorts that were like a night out in Hollywood and would just like be parodies of famous people. Three years after this, Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, the dummy, returned to Disney star in Walt Disney's first television production, One Hour in Wonderland, which was broadcast on Christmas Day in 1950 to promote Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and so again, like we see Disney sort of building out this stable of players. Uh, Bobby Driscoll, who was in Song of the South, is also one of them. He is, uh, will be the voice of Peter Pan in the future. Also from Song of the South, Lana Patton, both Lana Patton and Bobby Driscoll will be in So Dear to My Heart, which we'll be talking about in a couple weeks. And so she reappears here after being in Song of the South in the Beanstalk segment as sort of Edward Bergen's audience, I guess, for lack of a better uh, a better term. She's one of the connecting pieces in this live action segment. So with Patton and with Bergen and Jiminy Cricket, I'm going to say, we start to see Walt sort of, again, as he kind of had done with Mickey and Donald and Goofy, sort of building up a like a, a stable of of characters or, or performers uh, that he could bring into various projects. And this was definitely going on with the voice actors as well. So for instance, in the Mickey and the Beanstalk, we have the Wicked Giant, and his voice was Billy Gilbert, who was well known for his iconic sneeze and for his use of it in Snow White as Sneezy. So he was definitely bringing him back in, trying to keep this talent going within the Disney studio. He also brought back Dinah Shore, who had sung the Two Silhouettes segment of Make Mine Music to sing and narrate the bongo section. And the biggest, most important thing was he was really trying to kind of work off of the popularity of Donald Duck and revive the popularity of Mickey. So, for instance, Fun and Fancy Free was scheduled to bring Mickey back to movie screens a week before his first short in five years. So this was kind of a chance for him to bring together all of these pieces that had been so beloved, such an important part of kind of the Disney legacy that had been built at that point, and reminding people like, hey, we're still Disney, we're still doing great things. We have all these characters and actors that you love. Let's come back together for one more great movie to get us enough money so that we can make these bigger movies that we wanted to make. The Alice in Wonderlands and Cinderella's and Peter Pan's that end up coming about five to ten years later. You know, this was also the feature film debut of Donald and Goofy. Uh, you know, Mickey, of course, we talked about Fantasia, uh, but this was the first time that those characters had been in a feature film and not just a short. I actually didn't realize that it was Mickey's first time in theaters in five years because, you know, as we talked about in our Victory Through Air Power episode, Donald was the main feature for the propaganda shorts with a little bit of help from Goofy on occasion. But, you know, Mickey was really, was not part of that propaganda project really at all. I suspect in part because he was a little more, Walt was a little more precious about Mickey than he was about uh, the duck and the goof, as he would <laughs> refer them to. But this also has another another big landmark in Mickey's history, as it is the last time that Walt Disney was the main voice for Mickey Mouse. There's a lot of mythical reasons for that. Some people say Walt was, you know, as we've discussed on the show before, Walt was just moving on to other things and getting more interested in doing other work and not wanting to necessarily have to step into the recording booth to be the voice of Mickey. Others say it had to do with his excessive cigarette smoking and not being able to do that sort of high-pitched, like, oh boy, I can't even do it. Sometimes I can, but uh, not tonight. Regardless of the reason, Jimmy McDonald takes over for Walt Disney during the sort of recording sessions. 
you know, at the very least, this was the last last thing released that Walt voiced because he did his voice work back in 1941. And then obviously there were a lot of delays on the production. And then so anything that had to be re-recorded in after the war was Jimmy McDonald. So I, I don't have a clear breakdown on in the final product of the movie, but there's definitely scenes in this where Walt is the voice of Mickey and scenes where he is not the voice of Mickey. So it, it, it's an interesting kind of turning point within Mickey's history in particular. Yeah, and it's also kind of this moment where we see a lot of discussion of like, how far can we go with pushing everything Disney into this movie? And in what ways do we need to kind of dial it back? For instance, we know about a few of the deleted scenes where we know that, for instance, there was a scene where Mickey took the cow to the market and meets Honest John and Gideon from Pinocchio. We know that there was originally a scene where Mickey gives the cow to the queen, who is, of course, Minnie Mouse, and she gives him the magic beans. And so they kept trying to play with these other characters to see if, you know, they could really milk all of these classic beloved characters, or at least characters that we love to hate. But they decided that they wanted to pull back on that a little bit. Part of that also seems to be due to money. For instance, the bongo segment was supposed to have a lot of really lifelike drawings, particularly with the bears, in a way that's more similar to Bambi. But they then switched it to the kind of cartoonish forms that people have pointed out are very similar, if not carbon copies, of the animals in Snow White. So there's a lot of kind of playing with what is the Disney style, which characters are going to add fuel to the fire here, and which are just going to take more time and money than we want to give. Yeah, and I think, you know, going through these chronologically, it feels like the development of the Disney house style was maybe more about money than about a choice to like you know what i mean like they sort of fell back into it for financial reasons i feel like because up to this point especially thinking about snow white pinocchio fantasia dumbo and bambi they all have i think a very distinct style of their own like it doesn't really carry over movie to movie the same way that i feel like you know cinderella and alice in wonderland and you know the design work is different but they're like the way the humans look feels the same the way the animals you know depending on their level let's say of anthropomorphization feel similar and i think this is the first time i would see something and, and point to like oh this feels like disney feature house style in a separate style from like the mickey shorts and the donald shorts like you know the cartoons that take place in those worlds kind of have an established style because you know that consistency across all the different shorts but with this, especially compared to, like, Melody Time is kind of all over the place. Or, I'm sorry, Make My Music. I get those two titles mixed up because they are very similar. But Make My Music, all those shorts feel very different from each other, and it's kind of all over the place. But this, even though, like, one's a Mickey thing and one and Bongo is not, it feels like we're getting, you know, the, the that house style is starting to kind of emerge here. I think that there was definitely this sense that in the beginning, they wanted variety. They wanted to constantly be moving forward with technology and, and techniques. And by this point, you know, whether it was money or branding or both, which is probably the best answer, they were really getting to be Disney. And they wanted to create that established style, draw on the established titles, which is something we still see now. This is being recorded right after the new Little Mermaid comes out. And they were also trying to kind of create that future for Disney. So not only did they need to make the money for it, but they wanted to gar garner interest, which may be why you might notice that there is a reference to Cinderella in the Beanstalk segment, which would still not be coming out as an actual film, for three more years, but was certainly something that they were trying to get the money and get the appeal for so that they could kind of bring back the Snow White big feature uh, energy. It's funny to think like, you know, we're, we're this far into the show. Snow White's the only princess that we've, you know, sort of added into the canon so far. So I'm, I'm excited to get the Cinderella in context and, and see how that goes. 
I actually really like the idea of Honest John and Gideon showing up and selling Mickey the Magic Beans. Like, I actually think that's a really interesting idea that I was not aware of before reading into this movie. The Minnie Mouse thing, I think, would have been fine, but isn't as interesting. But I really like the idea of those characters interacting with Mickey. And who knows, maybe they could have been part of the sort of Mickey Mouse stable of characters at, at, at some point. Considering we talked about how weird it is that there's like, you know, Figaro and Honest John and Gideon all existing in the same movie. And one is clearly like a real cat and the other one is a upright, walking, talking cat person. So I will say as weird as it is to to talk about, you know, Figaro versus the very anthropomorphized cats, that will always be my gripe with Mickey Mouse cartoons in general, because why are Goofy and Pluto treated so differently? But I think we would have started to question that maybe more if we brought all of these classic characters together. I mean, that's fair. I still maintain that Goofy is a dog person and Pluto is a dog dog. So, (laughs) but I understand why both exist. No idea. Because it's not like we have like domesticated monkeys or something that we keep as pets. And that would be like the closest equivalent I can think, think of. I mean, you know, we're all aware of Planet of the Apes and how that starts, so mm-hmm. it's probably for the best. Fun and Fancy Free actually had a fairly big promotional push. Song of the South did have one, but this was sort of the, you know, return, as we said, the return of Disney feature animation, because one of the complaints about Song of the South was that there wasn't enough animation. And so as early as May of 1947, Edgar Bergen uh, hosted Donald Duck on his show to promote the film. After that, in August of that year, Clarence Nash, the voice of Donald, was sent on a promotional tour on the East Coast to, you know, again, do what we, we would think of today as like showing up on talk shows and just being a personality out there promoting the movie. That was cut a little bit short because he was needed for to record his voice uh, back in California. Again, different from today, where like now they're like, oh, I had to be in an animated movie, but I couldn't get to the studio, so I like recorded it at home. And then in September of 1947, uh, Walt appeared on Bergen's radio show himself to promote the film. Clarence Nash was also there uh, as Donald. And they, quote unquote, feud developed between Donald Duck and uh, Charlie McCarthy, Bergen's primary dummy, culminating in a joint performance at Mickey Mouse's, quote unquote, birthday party at the Disney studio in October. So we're again, sort of like that elaborate Snow White premiere, the drunk Pinocchio actors that they hired, you know, Disney is kind of back to a sort of multimedia push to promote their newest release. The film ultimately comes out September 27th, uh, 1947. Uh, It had a relatively poor reception from critics, again, as like, you have to think like these critics are the same people who are like, oh my god, we had, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia and, and Bambi, and then they're getting this and they're like, Okay, it's it's fine. It's nothing groundbreaking. By the end of the theatrical run, it had grossed a little over $3 million worldwide. Two million of that was generated in the United States and Canada. It does actually sort of pay off to start paying for Cinderella. You know, that's that's where a lot of this money was sort of rolled into while the other package films were in production at the time. Life magazine said most moviegoers will welcome Disney's return to basic Disney, which is like straight cartoon fun, which I think is a fair assessment. And Variety said all of it adds up to one of Disney's finest achievements. It goes to show you that like even back in the 1940s, we had this thing of like, it's the greatest thing that's ever been put out or like it's terrible and it sucks. Film discourse has always been this way. (laughs) You know, when you think about people overpraising or over attacking the latest big movie on film Twitter, it's just the same conversations we've all been having for the last 80 years. <laughs> you know, it was fine. It, it wasn't a flop, but it wasn't a huge success. And yet we have these fun quotes that are like, oh, no, it is really the best thing ever. Was it? I don't know. One of the kind of interesting things is that while it doesn't necessarily become one of these stories or these two stories that become critical parts of Disney culture, they really do seem to start building the kind of idea of Disney going beyond the movies, specifically with those promotional tours of Donald Duck, 
building kind of the big Disney parasocial relationship where audiences could meet the characters, which might have perhaps influenced Walt in the creation of Disneyland. We see Jiminy Cricket move from being just a Pinocchio character to being kind of this iconic Disney host narrator figure, which hasn't really happened since until the Olaf Presents series, which basically has Olaf retelling other Disney stories. Uh, I know we've had a couple others. I think that Aquin the Lion King was huge. They had Timon and Pumbaa do a little bit of that. But this really was kind of the chance for Disney to really push out a little bit more, but with those earlier characters. The only character to really take off from the movie itself was Bongo, who ended up being a character in later Disney comics and was the title character in one of the earliest Disney Little Golden Books in 1948. Beyond that, however, it doesn't have too much of kind of a life of its own until it was released on VHS in 1982. So in 1982, as, as Megan mentioned, uh, was the 35th anniversary, which is which just, it's like mind blowing to me to think of like how far away we are from 1982 versus 1947 at this point. But it was released, you know, as a whole, and then uh, there was a fully restored 50th anniversary release in 1997. Uh, it then made its debut on DVD in 2000, and then it was released as a two-movie collection Blu-ray with The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in 2014. The other thing about this that's really interesting is... I first saw Mickey and the Beanstalk as its own separate VHS release. So it was broken out and given its own separate release, separate from Bongo. So I did not see Bongo as a child. I only saw Mickey and the Beanstalk. And that version took out all of the live action segments. And it replaced the narration of Edgar Bergen with the duck character Ludwig von Drake, who was a recurring character mostly on, I believe, the Disneyland TV show. So Ludwig von Drake is Donald's paternal uncle, and he has an Austrian accent uh, as voiced by Paul Fries. And so he and his Beatle companion do the narration in the standalone home video releases. There's actually at least one or two other versions of Mickey and the Beanstalk with other narrators that I have not seen. So that segment sort of lives on on its own. And so the first time I saw Fun and Fancy Free as a whole, one, I was very surprised by Bongo existing. And then two, I was very surprised by the live action segments <laughs> and the ventriloquism prevalent throughout this version of Mickey and the Beanstalk. The other legacy I want to mention is Sir Mickey's, uh, which is a store in Fantasyland in Magic Kingdom in Florida, has a giant sculpted beanstalk kind of going through the store. Uh, and in the back, the roof looks like it's lifted up and you can see Willie the Giant sort of peeking in over the top shelves, which is really fun. So it doesn't have a ride or anything, but there is a park presence, at least for Mickey and the Beanstalk. There isn't one for Bongo, as far as I'm aware. And then there is a 15-minute documentary from 1997 that was done for that VHS and Laserdisc release called The Story Behind Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free. It's not on Disney+, Plus, but it is on YouTube, so we'll put the link to that uh, in the show notes as well. Megan, what's your overall reaction to Fun and Fancy Free, a title that I feel like they said 15 times over the course of, <laughs> of the movie? Yeah, that was one of the things I noticed most. I was like, wow, they just... Because it was such a patchwork, they felt the need to say Fun and Fancy Free as often as possible to remind you that was the name of it. My impression of this was, it's really unfortunate. I was really enjoying the movie. I had read that the Mickey and the Beanstalk segment was really good, but that Bongo wasn't. And yet when it started out, we got some really good usage of kind of the movement of depth with the multiplane camera. I thought it was a nice little story. I was sitting here going, oh, yes, this is the first time I've seen one and not gone. There's something horribly uncomfortable here. And, and then the slapping started. So for those of you who are not watching this on your own, the way that Bongo, because they wanted to just give Bongo a happy ending, but they needed to fill a little space, Bongo falls in love with uh, Lulabelle, who is this 
she's technically a wild bear, but she looks more like a teddy bear, uh, as does he compared to all of the others. Where she is kind of all doughy-eyed with him and she slaps him and he gets really upset because why is she randomly slapping him? And we suddenly discover Disney's wild take that while other animals might cuddle or sing a song, bears slap each other for affection. And then we just get like seven to ten minutes of bears slapping each other over and over. There's an entire song that I believe is legitimately called Say It With a Slap. It is Say It With a Slap. And the the grand conclusion is Bongo slapping Lulabelle so that she knows that he loves her too. And, and that was where it started kind of going downhill for me. It, it ruined Bongo for me a little bit. And there were some potentially phallic images in Mickey and the Beanstalk, which I am surprised there haven't been controversies over. And I think that once I was looking for weird things, they weren't very hard to find. So this is at least the third time that I've watched this as an adult with a Letterboxd account, uh, based on when I went to log it after watching it for this. This was the time that Bongo really worked for me. The last two times I was like, Bongo is just boring. There's not a lot there. It's fine, but it doesn't really do anything for me. And I, I found myself really enjoying it. I, I get not liking Say It With A Slap. To me, it I can sort of put that under cartoon fun and be like, okay, it's a wacky idea. The song is catchy enough where I'm willing to sort of forgive it. And clearly none of the bears are getting injured with the, with these slaps. So like, I'm going to allow it. I will say I did raise my eyebrows at the, there's a line that references making love. And I was like, that's an interesting choice. But apparently in the 1940s, apparently making love was just a public display of affection of any kind. So that terminology has certainly changed, but it did not require any sort of unskippable sensitivity warning at the beginning of this one on Disney+. Plus. I believe I did read somewhere that there were occasional releases of Just Bongo as a short where they edited that line. Because there have been a few others who have pointed out why are we talking about making love in, you know, this silly little bear cartoon? I mean, look, new bears have to come from somewhere. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but like I said, I think Bongo really worked for me. And, and maybe it is the similarity or the like opposition to Dumbo that made Bongo click a little bit more for me this time. I love making the beanstalk. I, I think it is overall excellent, minus the live action interruptions. Ventriloquism is not a thing that I particularly enjoy, and I mostly find those characters annoying. I do like that Mortimer has sympathy for Willie's death, and that he gets really sad. That's something that uh, the Beatle, who is Ludwig von Drake's companion in the in the version I grew up with, he, he takes the role of being sad for Willie the Giant, and I I always really like that beat uh, as someone who likes villain redemption arcs and just likes villain characters and is sad when like, oh, they didn't even get a chance to, you know, like, was Willie really doing anything wrong besides, you know, kidnapping a, a harp woman? I really, I, I think the animation is incredible. I really love the the look of Happy Valley at the beginning and then the contrast with how desolate it looks. The gag of slicing the single bean into like slices and the like transparent bread is really well done goofy singing about you know stuffing his face with all the things he's going to eat is a really great song and the the nighttime scene of them sleeping as the beanstalk grows and like you know donald slips out of his bed and into a barrel and i think all that stuff is fantastic i actually paused it when willie showed up because i was surprised there's only 13 minutes left in the movie when the giant shows up in in the jack and the beanstalk segment and i think he's he's a fun character the gag at the end, again, of him peeking, lifting up the roof and peeking in almost justifies the live action stuff existing for me, because uh, I, I do think that's a great gag. But I I really like parts of making the beanstalk, and I, I wish there was a version that was less interrupted or even less narrated, if that makes sense. I think that that breaking the fourth wall at the end is really fun because we do get the idea of like, now, wait, wait, wait. This is, it's all in your mind. It's fake. Don't worry about it. And then the giant just rips the, the roof off the house, uh, which I, I was personally a real fan of that. 
especially because I've been watching the credits a lot now, because there's definitely a change in those since the strike. I noticed that alongside the names of the human actors, they were putting the major Disney characters, you know, Jiminy Cricket and Mickey Mouse and Donald were alongside the human actors. So it felt very natural that they would then be able to, you know, Jiminy Cricket was complaining about how the story was told or the giant was kind of scaring all of them. I thought that that was really good. I I feel like that does justify a lot of the live action, but I was deeply confused by why, and this is a silly point, but I was deeply confused why killing the cow was such a horrible concept. I mean, I, I get that in America, we don't want to think that beef and cows are the same things, but they were so horrified by the idea that they might kill the cow, but not by the fact that they were selling the cow. So it didn't have the the level of sentience for that to be a problem. But then only one of the characters cared that the giant was killed for not much of a reason. I don't know. The the morality was was a little bit questionable with some of that live action for me. I I do get that for sure. You know, s- selling the cow is certainly, you know, a uh a less direct harm coming to the cow or trading the cow for magic beans for that matter. My other big question around the live action stuff is why is this little girl alone in in a house with a ventriloquist? <laughs> There's nobody else there and it's not like I don't I don't feel like they explain that like oh like that's her uncle or like her babysitter or something like it's just here they are in this house. It's 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 weird. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I feel like they could have Especially since they were having Mickey Mouse's birthday literally a month after this came out. Just say that that was like an early birthday party for him or or something. Or bring Walt in. I know that Walt wasn't on screen terribly much at this time other than the reluctant dragon. But I just felt like we needed some other humans there. So it wasn't just this small child and the ventriloquist. Whose dummies are questionable in their own rights you know funny in a ventriloquism act a little disturbing when it's them and and a small child and nobody else and you know it's not like they know jiminy cricket is there so like it's not like he's supervising this or something i don't know that part always strikes me as a little weird and again you know it's meant to be cute or whatever but to me the i don't mind it as bookends but i think the inner cutting of the live action into Mickey and the Beanstalk takes away from Mickey and the Beanstalk more than I would like personally. I can definitely see that. I think it would be better if they didn't jump in and out if they just had it at the beginning and at the end so that we could still get that kind of end gag with the giant. I loved seeing him like walking through Hollywood and putting on the hat. I I found all of that amazing. The energy that so many people loved in Wreck-It Ralph 2 of seeing all of these characters come together and let's put things in weird different contexts was surprisingly being met very well in the 1940s with that moment. But yeah, the the middle discussions were unnecessary and, and distracting from what was otherwise a pretty good sketch. Yeah, but I agree with you. If it was at the beginning and the end, it, it would be a lot better for me. And that end gag, like I said, almost justifies all of the live action stuff because it is so good and so funny. And it feels, I don't know, kind of iconic in a way. Like it's just like just seeing that and the way the animation p- puts together, like it, it looks really good com- even compared to some of the other stuff in the movie. But I think, I think it's one where, like I said, the quality of the animation itself even varies a lot. Like I said, I think that the early stuff all the way up through them you know, the beanstalk growing in their sleep, I think looks really good. I think some of the other stuff around, like in the giant's castle is less impressive compared to like what you would see in a short, but there's some great moments in making the beanstalk. And it's one that as a kid, I would watch that tape a lot because for whatever reason, I just, I just really liked it. Other than some weirdness, you know, this movie is just fun. It's pretty simple, pretty harmless. I actually don't, mind all of the kind of weird connectivity bits i 
think that Jiminy works pretty well. I find it kind of silly that they, uh, well, maybe not silly. They kind of mock Fantasia, where you can see, you know, he mocks some of these like highbrow books, says that he likes simpler stories. They go to put on the bongo disc and we see all of these like classical composers and their music is up and he's like, no, let's let's listen to somebody singing about, you know, a circus bear. That's that's what people really want, which maybe was, you know, them commenting on how Walt was a little misguided. Maybe that was them mocking people for not liking Fantasia enough. I felt like overall it had some good through lines. I didn't necessarily mind all of the little interludes and the stories themselves other than slapping as affection, which I looked it up. I couldn't find any signs that that's a real thing bears do. I don't think it is. Uh, I, I don't think it's true. I am not an expert by any means, but the best I could find was male bears slapping each other to win a mate, not just bears doing it for, for the fun of it. But uh, other than that, other than making up bear courtship rituals, I, I feel like this is probably the least problematic movie we've watched so far. I think that's probably true. I would agree with you that this movie is fun. I would also argue that it is fancy free. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I really enjoy it. And it's one that the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it for what it is because it is it feels like an oddity and you can sort of see how they're trying to return to form and yeah i'm I'm very eager to see where we go from here because we're going to talk about some movies i haven't seen before so and i think that that's going to be really a, a fun way for us to start seeing what worked and what didn't work and what kind of Aids into obscurity versus some of these elements that are going to keep popping up as we go through. So with all of that being said, you definitely want to check out our next segment. Next time on Dream with Mind and Heart, we'll be dipping into another musical package with American folklore, bumblebees, and the samba with Melody Time. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Dream Mind Heart, and on Instagram at Dream with Mind and Heart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela. <laughs>